This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gen Con. Gen Con. The Eclipse. And Gen Con. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. So, hey, Ken, is your brain currently mushy by any chance? It has been less mushy in the past, and one hopes will be less mushy again in the future. Uh, right now, self-diagnosis is one of the many tools that is not functioning. Right. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm at about a, a, a six on the brain function scale, if uh, ten is functioning brain. And uh, we both have the same uh, reason slash excuse, and that is that we are in Gen Con recovery mode. Not as you listen to this, but as you as we record it. We are on the Wednesday after Gen Con, and both of us had further brain-stressing adventures afterwards. Or, well, not stressing, per, per se, um, brain-using episodes. So we're going to try not to babble too much, but we've got a lot to babble about, because although it is our wont to do an entire episode after Gen Con, about Gen Con, this is the most Gen Con-y year in a long time, because, of course, it was the 50th anniversary of Gen Con, and you could palpably Feel the 50th-ness in the air, couldn't you, Ken? Indeed you could. Uh, everywhere you looked, there were 50th-nesses uh, occurring. People telling you unprompted how long they'd been going to Gen Con. Uh, the banners, the t-shirts, the signs. Everything was 50th-licious uh, there at Gen Con. And there was special uh, track of panels for 50th anniversary programming, which we will get to. And there was lovely museum of Gen Con that was established on the floor of scenic Lucas Oil Field. Right. And just before we get to that, there was also another unprecedented this thing this year, which is that the all the badges sold out. Yep. Uh, not only the four-day badges, but the, the whole Megillah. I saw very few Saturday or Sunday badges. I saw a lot of four-day badge, and I think that's another big uh, trend that we can get to uh, off the jump before we head on over to uh, the museum, uh, which is that I guess, uh, you know, if you're going to do Gen Con these days, you're going to do the whole thing and that we're getting the, I guess, the locals. Uh, if you left it too long and you're in the area and just want to pop in that day, you are out of luck. Uh, that, hence, fewer Saturday and Sunday badges and hence a uh, change in the 
uh, sales pattern at the booths that uh, at Pelgrane, uh, we got a big rush the first day. And then after that, it was kind of uh, steady because you didn't have new people coming in uh, on the weekend who hadn't already had a, a crack at the hall. Uh, but far from the exhibit hall, if you go all the way over to Lucas Oil Stadium, as you uh, indicated earlier, a new venue for the uh, convention. It seems like there's still a lot of space there, but a room to grow in future years. This year, because of the 50th, uh, Peter Eikison and uh, curator John Peterson put together uh, something pretty amazing. And I guess you were a volunteer tour guide at one point. Uh, in the sense that Peter volunteered me to be a tour guide? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's volunteering. Yeah. Um, yeah. I got to take a group through the 50th anniversary Gen Con Museum, and Peter requested that I not go to the museum to check it out first. That he thought that what would be more fun for the group would be there seeing me react to the display as they got to react to the display. And I can do no research. Exactly. I can't, um, uh, I can't speak to how, how great that was for them or how good an idea that was in the larger scheme of things. Uh, because Sunday, my tour was Sunday at two. And if you think we are brain fogged now, well, we're about that brain fogged at Sunday on two as well. Brain fog begins sometime Sunday morning after breakfast and then just keeps fogging up ever further. If your brain fog only started on Sunday, you did better than I did. Yeah. Well, I mean, it became measurable to your earth uh, instruments on it, Sunday. It became visible through the ears. Yes. So uh, when you approach the museum, the first thing you see is a replica of the facade of the horticultural hall uh, that was the original first venue in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin of the event back when it was just a little war games convention. In fact, it, you know, it, it was the convention a few years later uh, where D and D was born. And there you can see uh, what the horticultural hall doorway looked like. And you can hear uh, an audio interview with uh, Gary Gyrax, which just happened to be the interview that I conducted with him for the 40 years of Gen Con book. And it doesn't feel 10 years ago that I wrote that book, but apparently the calendar says otherwise. So describe what you saw when you uh, uh, went in. Uh, you go into the museum and the first, uh, I think you're supposed to take a hard uh, left to go to the far end of the museum and start because that's where the precursors to D&D and uh, Gettysburg and the early war games were. But I took a right by accident see previous discussion and stumbled <laughs> on the room, uh, the little display case of programs and badges from Gen Cons. And almost the first thing I saw was the badge of Dave Arneson for Gen Con one, I guess it was. And I reacted as one does to seeing a, a holy relic and the uh, crowd with me of about eight people. One of them said, who's Dave Arneson? And at that point I had two choices. I could say, get out. <laughs> Or Ooh, this is what museums are for. I could fall into overly talkative docent mode. And I did that for the whole rest of the tour. So uh, if you were on the tour and you began to wonder why your museum uh, guide was telling you about turn rate in game stores, blame the guy who didn't know who Dave Arneson was. <laughs> so eventually I figured out we were supposed to have started to cross because I could see the copy of Gettysburg and it begins uh, with the uh, origins of the wargaming hobby, 
Uh, then it moves through pretty much chronologically the development of the games that are played at Gen Con with uh, big panels talking about the history of Gen Con itself. And since I'd already read your book, I didn't need to look at those panels. We just looked at the games. Uh, the uh, precursors to D&D, things like um, the, the the castle game, um, uh, not Blaustein, but the, the game where you would play individual Napoleonic guys attacking the castle, a uh, copy of Little Wars, a copy of Sniper, lots of other places where you can look at maybe playing one hero then into the original uh, rules for chainmail and the original manuscript for Dungeons and Dragons with Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax's handwritten corrections on the typescript. Uh, it was at that point that the tour ran into John Peterson, the author of Playing at the World, the only good history of role-playing games ever written, even though it only goes up to 1976. Uh, John Peterson and I had been at a social function the night before, and I told him, oh yeah, Peter's having me give the museum tour, and he told me not to uh, go to the museum and uh, to the tour and do any research and beforehand, and you could see John's eyes sort of, you know, turn uh, to frighten and horror. And so, I think so, maybe so he just mysteriously showed up as, as mysteriously a showed up at the most <laughs> important part of the tour to make sure I didn't screw it up. <laughs> so he pointed out that. So the real instructions were don't do research and then randomly bump into John. And then Peterson. randomly bump into John Peterson. And so I then found myself, uh, you know, launching forth from D and D through. Uh, the origin of uh, Call of Cthulhu and Pendragon. I informed the, uh, the the tour that this was the best and second best role playing games ever designed. As I believe a docent is, in, it's, it, you're supposed to instruct as well as inform. And I uh, and then we went around to the games that were out when I was in college, and I had a, a moment of stopping and, and licking the box because uh, if uh, the golden age of science fiction is 13, the golden age of role playing is college. Um, where, whatever you were playing when you were in college, I think you may have, you may not have built the fondest or the deepest memories of, but you've built the most complex and associative memories of because. Right. And you have the memories of your friends who you exactly. were spending time with. And, uh, uh, and I, I think that's a great insight because it points to, uh, role playing's nature as, as a social affair. And so, of course, you remember, uh, your, uh, your college friends and your college experiences, if that's when you mostly role played. I actually have an unusual pattern in that, uh, role playing was a dead zone for me in university, but that's another topic. That is um, another topic. Yes. So when you started seeing the artifacts from when you came in, did you feel, that is when you started coming to Gen Con as a, uh, you started coming essentially as a pro like me, right? I, I began coming as a volunteer demo guy for Chaosium. So, Semi-pro. I had a pro badge. Yeah. So, so when you uh, started to see the stuff that was showing up when you were there, did you uh, feel a sense of uh, a warm and fuzzy nostalgia, or uh, the sense of horror that you were vertiginously spinning toward the grave? A uh, warm and fuzzy nostalgia because I got to see things like um, uh, the first unspeakable oath uh, that John Tynes uh, published, and then you know you can't look at a thing John Tynes did and not have a warm and fuzzy sense of nostalgia because we all remember when John would come, and uh, it, it, a lot of it is like you say remembering friends, and in this case, friends who are designers. So I would see a game and I would think about, you know, oh, I was at that Gen Con when that game dropped and I talked to that game's designer. Oh, and there's a copy of Pantheon, which was handed to me by uh, James Wallace and, and brooded about the show by me when people would say, what's good? And I would tell them. And, th and there was sort of that early Gen Con era when you could go around and see things and talk to all the designers <laughs> in the you distant past. what was new on the floor. Right. And so the... um uh the, the there was not a point at which it was suddenly oh here's Ken 
Ben's professional career, because due to the vagaries of the collecting impulse, I don't think any game that I ever published was in there. I'm, I'm in there sort of tangentially because I've got a piece of Hill Folk, but I don't think anything I worked on is in the Gen Con uh, museum, which is fine. Uh, these things happen, but, uh, but I didn't have the moment of, oh, here's my professional entry into Gen Con. I had more the, here's my personal entry into Gen Con, uh, feel as I, as I looked at the, at the booth. And then, you know, we get to the Magic the Gathering, uh, card display, and that lets me explain, uh, turn rate again, because I've, I've, uh, led up to it with a discussion of role playing games and how they buried role, war games, uh, <laughs> launched into it by a, a box of advanced squad leader to explain what happened to war gaming. And then, uh, <laughs> We went around, uh, through that and looked at the, at the post magic era of, of card games. Everyone was, uh, particularly, uh, awe inspired by the first Pokemon cards up there. And then we went around and finished out the show and, uh, with, uh, these are games that are popular now. Maybe they will be in a museum in 50 years, uh, box. And I looked at it and I took little bets with myself. Nope, nope, not going to happen. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> now having myself, uh, having done the 40 years book, uh, it was, uh, most of it was sort of like a, a uh, combination of, uh, well, seeing the artifacts, of course, is a big thing. Seeing the handwritten r- rule sets or the first issue of Alarms and Excursions. Or, and, or and Jonathan that. Tweet's personal high school campaign notes. Yeah, that, that has a, a real sort of, uh, numinous sense to it. Uh, but also for me, it was like, uh, being plunged back into my, uh, research for the oral history. And then, of course, you get to the year 40 and, the next decade, uh, it becomes a little bittersweet because it's when we start to lose people. Yeah. That's, that Gary is present as a recording because, you know, he and uh, Gary are gone. And uh, to skip ahead a bit, uh, this was the first uh, year uh, where the Diana Jones Awards were preceded by a sadly uh, kind of lengthy list of people we've lost in the last year. And uh, it just makes demographic sense that if... Uh, I, we can say that the hobby is essentially 50 years old, that, uh, you know, tabletop role playing came along in 73, but, uh, you know, it's basically 50. And that means that, uh, demographically we're starting to hit that point. And there was a long period there when that, uh, wasn't the case, but, uh, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, uh, as the hobby has matured, uh, the generations are moving along and you can see that in a much more joyous way in, for example, the delightful picture of a dark, frizzy-haired uh, Greg Stafford, all uh, grinning and full of uh, youthful energy at the at the uh, early Chaosium book. <laughs> um, so, uh, I guess that sort of uh, segues into uh, the uh, main uh, 50th anniversary thing that I was uh, lucky enough to take part in, which was moderating uh, one of the panels. Uh, Pete, uh, Peter scheduled a day's worth of retrospective panels, which are all uh, recorded on video, and I uh, understand that they will all be released eventually. Uh, but uh, I was assigned the In the Shadow of the Castle seminar, and that went for 90 minutes. And it was uh, basically uh, looking at the 80s from the point of view of the army of, of young uh, upstarts who are uh, coming in to uh, also do role-playing in the face of the might of TSR. And it was also a means that it took the era from its years at the UW Parkside, which was a, a university campus uh, out in a forest, to uh, Milwaukee. And we wound up, I didn't stick exactly the 80s, because uh, uh, just before the 80s was the year when they had the event in the nearby 
Playboy Club. <laughs> you, you can't not talk about that. In the early 90s, uh, just as the, you know, the 60s begin in 1963 uh, and end in 1972, the 80s, you know, they kind of go all the way up until uh, the, the uh, point where you and I start arriving and, and then ends with the advent of, of Magic Cards. So we spilled over that a bit and we had uh, a great panel for that. We had uh, Greg Stafford, Jordan Wiseman, uh, John Nephew representing the, the Gen X uh, generation because he started as a 16-year-old writer for Dungeon Magazine. And uh, we had uh, Steve Jackson, that's uh, Steve Jackson US, and uh, of course Mike Pondsmith. So they had all sorts of great stories, a couple of which I wish I'd managed to get out of them for the 40 Years book. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> most of them were pretty good. Uh, but there's a, uh, I, I won't spoil it because they're, you know, this is going to be available on video, but, uh, uh, Jordan, uh, this time happened to remember a really great story about what happened when, uh, the, uh, TSR changed, uh, regimes and the new regime decided to stiff a printer on an order placed by the old regime and vengeance ensued. So let's just oh, leave that. Oh, goody. Let's leave that, uh, uh yes. teaser out there for that. And certainly the the overall feel of the show reflected the excitement of the anniversary, and I guess uh, we can talk about that a bit more after this exciting commercial message. Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pograin Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh. The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. And we're back, Ken. So, the overall vibe of the show, how would you describe it? What did it tell us about where the uh, the hobby and the business are uh, going and whether they're going in, in tandem or off in two different directions? Well, I think the overall vibe of the show was positive. Um, I, I did talk to some people who had medium-level instead of high-level sales. Uh, I don't know if that was a matter of booth geography because... This year, I was serving two masters. I was both at the Pelgrane booth and the White Wolf booth with the result that I had zero time to go out and wander the hall as opposed to no time, which is my normal status. So I was not able to, you know, verify traffic flow on the floor. I know that it was uh, busy, but it was never stifling on the exhibit hall. But I didn't know how much of that was sensible layout versus lower attendance. This may be inside baseball. But there are, uh, so I don't want to get too much into this because this gets into, uh, you know, 
booth people complaints because, uh, you know, you can get kind of minute and most people don't really care. But uh, there were dead zones and clogged zones in the hall. So traffic is not ideal as a you want people flowing past your uh, stand and have activity on both sides of the aisle so that they're uh, so that they don't just sort of rocket straight through. And the advent of the big mega booths, uh, which are often uh, sort of little uh, huts unto themselves. It's now like uh, the. It's funny a lot. The TSR Castle uh, from the old days in Milwaukee got a lot of uh, mention in the panel. Well, now we've got a bunch of little forts, at least, if not entire castles. And if you are behind the back wall of one of those right. big enclosed booths, as uh, we happen to be at Pelgrane, uh, you can see that people kind of. That means that half of the space is dead. They're not looking at both sides of the aisle. And if it's kind of clear that way, people just sort of rocket through and they don't stop and see your thing. So uh, right. one of the things that you really want as an exhibitor is not just to have your uh, current people uh, seek you out, which, of course, they will do and they'll do it right away on the Thursday. But you want new people to stumble across uh, what you're doing and come over and ask about it and to, to win a few converts. And so there were areas in the hall where the traffic is too sparse because of the way those big um, mega booths are positioned. So there's sort of the Vauban fortresses and you're, and you happen to be in one of the glossiest cleared zones out behind them. Yeah. The, that's exactly um, the metaphor I was groping for. Well, of course it was. Course I can tell uh, the fantasy flight was uh, the big one. They were sort of an outpost of the Asmo day uh, mega booth, but there was another couple that have sort of expanded horizontally as opposed to vertically. Uh, it, it, certainly in terms of traffic flow, uh, because there's no vertical traffic flow on the floor, idiot. That's why. I also did want to mention uh, Gen Con's uh, official attendance number is 207,979 turnstile, which is uniques, or not uniques. That's the number of times people have went into Gen Con over the four days. Uh, the unique number is probably a little over 60,000 because Gen Con has not released it yet, but they said that they targeted an attendance of 60,000. Now, since... Attendance was 60,000 last year and 61,000 the year before that, and tickets didn't sell out. I don't know how you get 60,000 uniques and tickets do sell out. So I'm assuming that at some point, it's the number of uniques that drives whether or not tickets sell out, not the number of day slots, but whether that number is 65,000 or 70,000. I'm yeah. sure it's not all a charade. Well, to, no uh, one would do that. It's not faked. I mean, that's ridiculous. Right. No one that's well, cutting your, it's, it's your arms off. It's not like you want to lull the fire marshals into a false security or anything. <laughs> exactly. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry. The fire marshal believes that we've, uh, that we've sold out, but we're going to keep sneaking people in the back. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I don't think so. Anyway, but the, uh, but the fact is that although there was, um, a, a big ton of people, Showing up at Gen Con, my overall takeaway was that the crowd, as it was, seemed um, better distributed. Whether there was less cosplaying or the cosplaying was always in a different place than me meant that I could walk uh, across the uh, convention center at a rec at a reasonable speed, even on Saturday, which I could not do the last two days or the last two years. And if I did not, you know, know that the show sold out, know that uh, Turnstile was up, and know that uh, many people did quite well. Uh, fantasy, the aforementioned Fantasy Flight sold out a ton of games very, very early, which is not the sort of thing that uh, the flinty-eyed uh, Christian Peterson wants to have happen. Um, my my estimation is that it was like you say that there are pockets and other pockets, and so the 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 show is more uh, it's less well distributed crowd across 
all the things that people do. And some areas were probably jammed up. It just didn't happen in the areas in front of me. And certainly talking to uh, publishers about their future plans and how they've been doing, it's pretty clear that uh, the industry as a whole is leveling up. It's moving to a whole nother level. Now, traditionally, uh, we have a bit of a boom-bust cycle in tabletop role-playing, so a, a contraction is always possible. And certainly uh, in the board gaming space, the number of uh, releases that are coming out every year is, is now reaching the point of um, other entertainment products where no store uh, can possibly uh, set as its goal the idea that they will carry everything. So just as you don't have a record store that has every record in it or uh, back in the day when there were record stores, kids, or, uh, you know, a <coughs> bookstore that has all fiction or whatever that uh, the uh, retailers are going to have to start uh, being uh, even more careful than usual th- than before. A retailer now is probably not even able to carry a Sturgeon's Law percentage of everything. There's a, over a hundred new board games coming out every week. Um, if you just did a Sturgeon's Law call of that and did 10 or 12 board games every week, that's still more than uh, that. That's still more shelf space, more inventory space than most retailers have. Not least because you're still selling all the stuff that came out in the last few weeks that uh, turned out to be good or popular or both, ideally. Um, and, and that's um, why it's sort of interesting that the the uh, Kickstarter boom, I think, is actually going to wind up becoming uh, part of the same system with the retailers. In that, uh, if you have to pick and choose, and a new thing has been kickstarted, as chances are it has been. You can kind of see how it did in that first wave among the keeners. And uh, I guess you sort of then have to make the calculation of, does that mean that everybody who, all of my customers have already backed it on Kickstarter and aren't going to buy it here? Or if this is a new uh, super hot, cool thing that my more casual uh, buyers are also going to want, because of course you have to be super tuned in to what's going on in, in gaming to back things on Kickstarter. And there's certainly the sense that uh, for tabletop role playing, that even more than ever, that the bounties of Kickstarterdom have allowed the company to sort of strengthen themselves and to uh, create a sense of excitement. And it's the thing that has uh, saved a lot of uh, companies just in time for the audience for role playing to uh, radically expand uh, yet again. And we now have new venues to bring people into gaming, which uh, do not uh, limit themselves to just the friendly neighborhood game store. But now we're bringing in all sorts of uh, people, some of whom don't know who Dave Arneson is. Yes, uh, by an odd coincidence. Because they're coming in through uh, watching streaming or listening to actual play podcasts or, uh, you know, if there's there's a whole new crowd uh, uh, coming our way and their tastes are a little different. and uh, But they're hungry for uh, role-playing, which uh, couldn't be more exciting. And, for example, uh, our buddies, our, our booth neighbors at Green Ronin, uh, have the uh, setting for the Critical Role uh, YouTube uh, cast. And for all I know, Critical Role is on Twitch as well. Don't send us emails. We're both very old. Um, but the Critical Role is on the YouTube, and they play D&D there, and they're uh, uh, personable uh, improv guys, I think. And so... Uh, they had a thing where the critical role guys were going to be there and sign the new critical role 
game and uh, or game supplement uh, setting, and they had a, a line. They had a, a, a thing where you would have to stand in a little maze so that you didn't jam up everyone outside the booth. And it's the first time I've ever seen that for a straight-up role-playing game product. I mean, even when Matt Forbeck was signing Brave New World, they didn't have to put out, you know, a special little maze to keep the, the, the crowds under control. It was just people came by and jammed up um, Matt's booth for a while, and then they all wandered away. But this this bespeaks an era, you know, the only time I've ever seen anything like it was when we had Jerry Ryan at our booth uh, to sell Star Trek at one point. And yeah, people would line up to see Jerry Ryan, but no one would ever line up just to see someone who plays D and D that would be ridiculous, except now all of a sudden they are. So there is an, a star system it, growing up in the ecology of watching people play uh, role-playing games, words that make no sense coming out of Ken's <laughs> mouth. And yeah, not it's just weird because that those words all went together in that sequence and not just because of post Gen Con burnout. And I think that, I heard anecdotally that the audience for role-playing has doubled since 2013, that the number of role-playing sales, especially if you start tracking it through the Amazon channel, most of the people who watch stuff on on YouTube don't know about retail stores or don't care about retail stores any more than any other millennial does because they can go on Amazon. They're Amazon Prime members maybe, and they get it uh, free shipping in two days and often at a, at a discount. Why wouldn't you do it? So this very ill-tracked group of, of sales in some cases amounts to double a, um, a publisher's sales of their core books or of their books. So, uh, this untapped unknown market, I think is beginning to seep into Gen Con. Then that may be where we're seeing a lot of the sort of, uh, teenagers and 20 somethings that come around our booth, not from the uh, traditional acquisition of having a member of the chess club bite you or bleed on you, which is how, of course, you and I became role players, but. <laughs> By, you know, watching it on YouTube and then hearing about Gen Con and thinking, well, it's a con. That means you're going to get to go and dress up as Batgirl and buy things. And while that's less true at Gen Con than other places, it's still becoming truer as con culture is also sort of feeding Gen Con, I think. Right. There's also a thread, uh, though, about uh, the fact that the uh, people in the aforementioned golden age when they were in college who loved certain things are now older and have... Uh, money, and that reflected in the Annies, which suggests that we should have a commercial and then uh, start talking about the various award shows. So uh, listen to this, folks. Uh, accept your award and come right on back. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and game
gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Aaron Sapp. David Mascari. Adam Grochon. Corey Welch. And Ross Ireland. So, Ken, let's start our uh, discussion of the various uh, awards given out at uh, Gen Con with the award that is given out at the very start of Gen Con. In this case, it was given to Gen Con, and that would be the Diana Jones Award, which recognized Gen Con and its huge importance to uh, building the hobby uh, with the 50th anniversary as a hook. And uh, that was a uh, a lovely and splendid thing to see. Yeah, um, I I think that no one there could object to it going to Gen Con. I think that there may have been a sense that it was sort of in the bag once Gen Con was announced on the short list because what kind of monster would vote against Gen Con? That said, well, a, a monster who was rooting for a romance trilogy, right? right a, a monster. Not that was I know any for, such monster. Yes, no. Obviously, Robin or I could only speculate as to what members of the shadowy Diana Jones Awards cabal. Who they even are, much less uh, whether or not they've voted for Emily Kerboss's magnificent romance trilogy as a towering example of game design, uh, both in terms of genre breaching and in terms of actual at the table play uh, for our hobby and for our industry and for our art form. So we can only speculate that someone might have done, might have voted for the romance trilogy for those reasons. But yeah, Gen yeah, Con had it pretty much in the bag. Gen Con in second, but like they I might've. said, we don't even know who they are. Might have, might have done it. Might have done it. Might have put something else in second. Move Gen Con down to third. Who can say? But at any rate, it did win, and it was lovely to see Adrian Swartout, who has managed Gen Con for the last what decade? Seems like a decade. You're the Gen Con expert. How long has Adrian been running it? While Peter stands uh, in the background and does other she's, things, she's probably been running it for uh, less than a decade because she was not a figure in 40 years of Gen Con. <laughs> All right, so so there you go. Something under a decade, but yeah. she has been very much sort of taken the helm of it, guided it to this sort of dizzying new heights where it is selling out and breaking uh, second-rate mid- Midwestern cities in half over its knee, um, and good for her. And so it was nice to see her go, go up and get that award and, and, and celebrate it. And it is nice that we have Gen Con as the sort of um, uh, uh, juggernaut that it has become and the iron, the iron wheel that both propels us forward and grinds us into mush every August. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a lovely thing to see the Diana Jones award event is always one of my favorite things to do all year. In fact, if I have lived a good life, when I die, I will go to the Diana jo- Jones award party forever. I think free drinks and my 500 per- best personal friends around me. Who doesn't love that? That's, that's great. You'd be losing your voice for all eternity. Exactly. Which is why, why other people are voting that that's my, my fate is to go there and lose my voice. <laughs> um, now, uh, it was not the only award given out on the uh, the eve of the show. The Indie Groundbreaker uh, Awards, uh, which used to just be known as the Indie uh, Game Awards, uh, were uh, given out. And uh, Game of the Year uh, went to Seven Wonders, published by Pelgrane. It is the uh, 
a, a brain a child of our uh, uh, esteemed colleague, uh, Kat Tobin. Uh, so she was uh, quite pleased about that, and uh, we were too. Other awards in that prestigious list included uh, Fellowship for Best Art, Warbirds for Best Setting, Best Rules to Masks, A New Generation, and Most Innovative to The Beast, which was also up for a DJ award. So uh, the designers of The Beast uh, uh, got uh, their own super exciting award that night. Exactly. They got a like, little double tap for The Beast. Yeah, the Indie Awards, I, I, they sort of exist on my periphery. Uh, when I was really paying attention to the indie releases. I would, I would vote in them. Now they, I get the ballot and I always feel embarrassed to vote in them because I barely know anything. And it would just be me voting for people I know as opposed to me voting for products. I mean, I've looked at master new generation and it's great. So I might well have voted for it, but I would have voted for seven wonders, not only because it's great, but because I know cat and I'm associated with Pograin. And so I feel like my vote now in the indie awards is, is uh, a little uh, less well-informed and I don't do it. I don't know how many other people are, are like me. They used to vote in it. And then they don't. And I don't know how many people pay attention to it, but right. it's a pretty and, good and that award. Goes back again to the, you know, the, the elephant is now too big to, to wrap your arms around. There's yeah. too much going on. And, and the notion that the indie role-playing scene is too big for me to understand is also as mind-boggling as the notion that role-playing is too big for me to understand or Gen Con is too big for me to understand, both of which uh, sort of have hit me with increasing force over the years. So well, someday, especially in the indie scene, if you have one person become a new indie gamer, they split into two ga- indie game designers. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they do have a, a fissioning uh, power to them. Um, but I, I guess the next logical progression is the Pelgrane booth will become too big for me to understand. And then Ken will have to be shuffled off to the corner. It, and, it'll uh, become a weird labyrinth uh, with uh, spiral steps and so forth. Right. So uh, I guess uh, let's head on to the, the big kahuna of, of awards, uh, the Ennies. Uh, first of all, we have to thank all of you, our, our uh, uh, beautiful and sophisticated listeners, for uh, voting for this very podcast, uh, for Best Podcast. We uh, took home the gold, uh, or humble sorts, so we're not going to say the word for Pete. That would be no, out of character. That would be a little, a little um, uh, déclassé, frankly. Um, but... We did win four times in repetition. I think we can right. say that. And, and of course, as you always say, that the real award is the silver. So, except, oh, oh, wait, except it's when we win the gold, then it's, then that's the real award. Well, when, 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 when one, when one, uh, uh, nominee is so obviously dominant that they're going to automatically win because of their enormous penetration, their superbly disciplined and, uh, groomed listener base. Uh, or their overwhelming quality. Yeah. Then the silver is the real award. So, so congratulations to Spellburn, uh, silver any winner for best podcast. Well done, Spellburn. Everyone check out Spellburn. It surely won the silver medal and therefore the truest, most honorable medal at the any awards. Good for you, Spellburn. Now, uh, what we saw overall, uh, was a really interesting, I think, gratifying pattern. There were, uh, uh, sort of three waves of awards. And two of them illustrated the point I was making earlier about the resurgence of things uh, people loved before they had money, and now they have money again and supported uh, Kickstarters and uh, are now seeing things rejuvenated. So uh, Chaosium uh, was, I think, the uh, overall uh, winner in in sheer metal tonnage by the end of the night, and you could see that the uh, love, uh, not just for uh, Cthulhu and his Eldritch Horde, but also for the fact that Rick Mainz and Jeff Richard and uh, Neil Robinson and Michael O'Brien and company have done the unimaginable and uh, 
have saved Chaosium and have a Chaosium that is uh, orderly and well run and (laughs) perhaps even has spreadsheets associated with it. And so uh, they've managed uh, to engineer this um, much uh, dreamed of a resurgence for Call of Cthulhu, which was uh, uh, resulted in a a shower of ennies and also uh, 7th Sea, the people who love 7th Sea and uh, saw that uh, achieve its own incredible uh, Kickstarter uh, resurgence uh, showered uh, their love on uh, John Wick for uh, reviving that game. And it was uh, yes. uh, a, a comeback story uh, is uh, always a charm and a comeback story in tabletop role-playing games where uh, the game uh, and the designers that you loved are able to uh, come on back to a glory and applause uh, warms the cockles of my heart at least. And on the topic of silver being the real award, how great was it to see Greg Stafford get to be up on stage accepting the silver any for fans choice for best publisher for chaosium. Um, if you, if you, if you had a dry eye at the end of that, then you are a monster and I want nothing to do with you. Uh, Greg Stafford getting to sort of welcome his well-earned adulation to preside once more over a revived chaosium, his, his, um, uh, his other mark on the hobby, the creation of chaosium. And when he said, you know, uh, thank you. If you voted for us, thank you. If you didn't vote for us, you are the reason that we do this. You are the reason that the hobby continues that we have a chaosium in the first place. It was, it was just, yeah, you know, I wanted to jump up on stage and promise to run off to Berkeley and write uh, RuneQuest for him again. And once more, I was held back only by a wedding ring and a number of other contracts, <laughs> but still, uh, it's just seeing, uh, Greg able to accept that award, to recognize that his great creation is back again, that the wheel has turned and, uh, Chaosium is, is back as a, as not just a major player in the industry, uh, creatively, but also as a major player in the industry in terms of sales and in terms of awards recognition. It just, it, it just couldn't have been nicer and better and happier. And for me, you know, if you're looking for peak moments at Gen Con, uh, seeing Greg, uh, accept that award as a fan's choice uh, publisher was just uh, overwhelming. But it wasn't all just a nostalgia trip. Um, no, it was as not. O- as wonderful as that was. The other wave was for Tales from the Loop, role-playing in the 80s that never was, by Freya Ligan. And that was uh, the, uh, Chris Birch from Modiphius got to uh, come up and uh, in his uh, uh, bracingly uh, self-effacing manner quickly... Uh, accept the awards on behalf of uh, Sweden and, and Freya Lycan. And uh, the great thing about that is that it's a completely out of left field, cool, new uh, thing that's sort of its own genre. It's even kind of a little hard to describe, but once you see it, it's uh, uh, beautiful and amazing, and it's not hard to see why people got excited about that. So to see, uh, along with these sort of uh, titans of other people's college years, this new cutting edge kind of indescribable thing also uh, get the love of any voters uh, was also, I think, a sign of a uh, hobby that is not just uh, looking uh, backward, but is, uh, has, is laying the fertile ground to do new, exciting, uh, surprising things. Although, of course, Tales from the Loop is about looking backward, so it's kind of a meta victory for the future. <laughs> <laughs> funny, funny story about Tales from the Loop, or maybe not funny, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, they approached me bef- when they were writing the game to say, hey, Ken, would you write the America chapter for Tales from the Loop? And I, at the time, was super, super busy, as indeed I still am. And I said, uh, sadly, no, I can't do it. And they said, okay. And they went off and they got Matt Farbeck to do it. And Matt, of course, you know, turned in his standard, you know, um, uh, belt one over the back wall job. Uh, but 
I got to say, as I saw it winning all those Ennies, I thought, ah, oh, man, I'll, I'll bet I could have cleared up some time to write a, a few thousand <laughs> words <laughs> for Tales well, from the Loop. If you said yes to everything that had some chance of allowing you to bound up onto the stage, then we would need uh, three of you and not just two. We would need three of me. And at least one of them would have to be doing their, their writing. Yes. Uh, speaking of you bounding onto the stage, uh, Bubble Gumshoe won uh, Best Family Game, which was... Uh, it did. It was so nice. Um, the, it was nominated for Best Rules and uh, be, uh, Product of the Year and Best Game. And uh, as previously stated, the waves of nostalgia and or Sweden buried it there. But in Family Game, uh, we did win because it is a game that you're that we wrote it to be playable either by um, uh, older folks uh, remembering what it was like and or for teenagers uh sort of role playing out what it's like uh, to be a teenager, if not necessarily a teenager solving uh, mysteries and crimes. Um, but bubble gumshoe did win best family game. And I'm super grateful that uh, I got to thank uh, my co-authors, co-designers, Emily care boss and uh, Lisa Steele, as well as uh, the, the uh, publishing uh, people, um, uh, Fred, uh, the design uh, book designed by Tiara uh, Gresta, um, all the other uh, people who sort of built up that book. Uh, I forgot to thank the other writers on it who wrote some subsidiary uh, sort of mystery seeds. Um, and I don't have the book here because brain fog, but um, I saw Shoshana Kasich and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I forgot to thank her. I hope she's not mad, but of course she's delightful. But the person I thanked most at that thing and i'll thank him again was sean nittner who did the production management on that book and oh my god uh if patience gets you into heaven sean gets to pick a heaven that is not full of fellow game designers he gets a really proper <laughs> clouds and angels and harps heaven with a uh, free-flowing um uh, mead if that's the heaven he wants he can stop over to valhalla probably gets drink tickets there um because he had such a great role in making sure that Emily and Lisa and I all got onto the same dime and then off the same dime at the same time and pulling that book together through its lengthy gestational process without Sean Nittner, there, there is no bubble gum shoe. And so he is the guy who I, I gave my most fulsome thanks to then and now and is a great guy anyway. And if you're out in the Bay area, go see him at big bad con and tell him I'm the reason that you bought a ticket and maybe he'll bring me out as a guest sometime. Now onto uh, panels uh, over all there was really strong uh, panel attendance this year uh, the uh, dramatic interaction uh, panel which uh, uh, Rachel Kahn who uh, helped illustrate Hillfolk and uh, has played in uh, a couple of my own drama system games uh, here in the in-house playtest group was uh, there again to uh, represent and play at a cool scene and this time uh, Alex Roberts uh, who is uh, new to the Pelgrane family and also working on a game called Tension, which is all about uh, interpersonal interaction. Uh, we're both there to help out, and uh, it was a pretty full crowd, which was very exciting, and we were able to talk about the basics of how Hillfolk distills down dramatic interaction, and uh, I did record that panel, so uh, hopefully we'll find a way to get that out. Um, unlike previous years... Uh, we're not going to be recycling a lot of little bits of audio from the panels into this show, because I think uh, that they either cover stuff that you've essentially heard before uh, in previous times we've recycled panels with that theme, or in the case of the Dramatic Interaction panel or the Gaming Saves the World panel, you sort of they work better as a whole. So we'll find uh, th through Palgrain some other way to uh, get those out. 
Uh, now, you uh, had some paneling outside the Palgrain purview uh, as, uh, as lead vampire designer. So did you get uh, uh, hoist up on a, on a stake and exposed to the, the fiery rays of the sun? Uh, no, although the panel was at noon, or it was at 11, but it lasted till noon. And we were talking about what venue to hold it on, and uh, someone suggested the roof. And I said, well, we don't want our audience to catch fire. And everyone agreed that that was probably a bad plan. So it was at the Weston. It was the what's going on with Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition panel. Uh, pretty standard. But again, those panels can go one of two ways. And ours went the good way, which is everyone brought basically love and understanding to our process. There was uh, maybe one or two people who were like worried that their chronicle would be somehow invalidated or that, that we were making decisions that they uh, didn't know about. Uh, ahead of time and had uh, processed and we were able to, if not allay all of their fears, at least let them know that we weren't doing it just to personally uh, wreck them. Uh, but most people were, were really excited about things like the new hunger mechanic, about some of the decisions that we were taking in terms of game design, some of the possibilities that are opened up by having a new system. So it was, it was really positive. And I would, did not go to the meet the new white wolf panel because it turns out I am a contractor of the new white wolf. So instead I went to the what's new at Paul Grain panel, uh, as discussed already will be up on the Paul Grain website and we won't have to worry about that. Right. The other panels that I did were the what's new about Delta Green panel because I am not just part of the Delta Green team writing the Delta Green core book, but also wrote Fall of Delta Green coming soon from Pelgrane Press. And so I got to answer questions about that and and tease uh, Scott, because that is apparently one of my roles in life. Uh, Greg Stolze was not there to be teased, which sort of uh, ruined a little of my fun, but you know, there you go. He was off uh, accepting plaudits as the designer of the new un unknown armies and, and, and deservedly so. But we, we did talk about Delta Green and, and that process um, for the people who've come and heard us do that panel year on year. They now actually have a game to look forward to and what kind of, what better reward could they have had? And I was on uh, a panel for Contessa uh, about playtesting that was run uh, Friday at 10 in the morning by the amiable and fierce Darcy Ross was the moderator of that. And I was on that panel with Hannah Schaefer, uh, the designer of Questlandia, and Jeff Stormer, who is a designer but also has a podcast uh, called um, uh, Table for One or Party of One. I forget which it is, but it's about one-on-one -on -one games. And I thought, gosh, if only Jeff Stormer and my buddy Robin Laws could get together, I'll bet they'd have something to say. But as it was, Jeff and Hannah and I had plenty to say about playtesting um, uh, under the rubric and banner of Contessa. And hopefully uh, we gave good service. People seem to take our insights well. I used um, your apothem that uh, playtesters are always right when they say something doesn't work and always wrong when they suggest how to fix it. And so I, I made sure to credit, credit Robin laws, all credit go to Robin laws. And um, they, yeah, I, I think that we maybe sort of demystified playtesting a little bit for people. And, and did you happen to see a recording device? Uh, there was a recording device, but I'm sure Contessa will do their usual wonderfully efficient and effective job of putting it out on some other website. But when it does appear, I will link into it in my own social media and perhaps here at the show. Now, uh, my most uh, sort of uh, curiously moving moment of the show ever happened at the They Might Be Giants concert. <laughs> uh, if you go way, way back into uh, Gen Con history around the time that uh, Wizards uh, took it over in Milwaukee, uh, They Might Be Giants uh, played Gen Con on a sort of a street festival basis uh, 
way back then, the Violent Femmes, uh, who are Milwaukeeans, uh, played Another Year. And uh, they, I think they forgot that they played uh, Gen yeah, Con. It was more notable for us than it was for them. And uh, But here they were in a stadium and somewhat overwhelmed. The sound, uh, you could tell that they don't usually play stadiums, so it was uh, okay, but not uh, not amazing. But the love of the audience for this nerd band of one's youth was palpable and just seeing everybody sway back and forth with the uh, flashlights of their uh, cell phones uh, going back and forth in the air uh, and a whole stadium uh, full of uh, people I thought uh, just it just really sort of struck me as I uh, kind of choked up a bit that uh, here's everybody all together and we've all kind of grown up together and now we've uh, somewhat to our surprise, uh, became a, a big deal. We've, there's a lot of us now. Mm -hmm. The concert was good. I actually, um, I, I, I've seen They Might Be Giants in more intimate spaces where I think, as you say, they they are uh, better tuned. Um, perhaps the most intimate was the uh, yard outside the University of Chicago Student Union, um, which was a, as intimate a space as I think they may have ever played outside their house. But this was a good show both for the reasons that you talk about and also I think because it sort of like like you said it, it sort of reiterated the themes of the of the of the show in the sense that it's nostalgia coming back for a win but it's also something that you never would have expected to happen happening on a much bigger scale than it should have happened and both of those things sort of are recapitulated in the in the uh, the music is sort of a throwbacky kind of music a lot of times um, although as you pointed out, they, they did fingertips as an encore, which is the weirdest <laughs> thing I think either of us saw at the show. Yeah. For, um, for those of you not deep in the tank on the, uh, oeuvre of, uh, they might be giants. Um, this is at the end of their album, Apollo 14. I think it is. I could be wrong on that. Which Apollo their album is named after, but it's a bunch of basically 10 second tracks jammed together of melodies for songs. They never went any further with. And to have that <laughs> done live on stage, let alone as an encore, was uh, a, a of the FUs that I've seen in the world. It was the most loving and beautiful FU that I could uh, possibly imagine. Yeah. Um, now, uh, are there any other uh, game-related things that we want to hit before we uh, move along to the uh, ancillary pleasures of, of uh, Indianapolis and then on to the epic side quest? Um, I guess I, this might be the place where I mention... Uh, the Appendix N bookstore that Goodman Games had uh, in in their booth. I, I got to literally three booths that were not mine, not one of mine this year. So okay, this will take some unpacking. So explain what Appendix N is and how it can have a uh, a spinner rack. All right. So uh, the Appendix N is the appendix in the back of the Dungeon Master's Guide, the original Advanced D and D Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, except no substitutes, in which Gary unburdens himself of the books you should read to become a better uh, GM, a better DM. And uh, these are books that Gary loved and books that Gary thought inspired uh, his work. And they range uh, from uh, weird post-Holocaust novels uh, by Fred Saberhagen through the, the sort of usual suspects, your Tolkien's, your Lovecraft's, your Edgar Rice Burroughs's, uh, down into sort of weird off-the-wall stuff like Margaret St. Clair's uh, book about um, elf kidnapping set in the modern-day Bay Area. Um, and it's a, it's a wild 
look into the creative mind of Gary Gygax and the creative mind of, I think, a lot of bookish Midwesterners who became the first uh, rank of, of DMs back in those hallowed days. And for reasons known only to himself, Joe Goodman, who is a genius and a great guy and runs Goodman Games, uh, p- publishers of Dungeon Crawl Classics, decided to recreate Appendix N in the form of a spinner rack bookstore of the sort that if you are of an age, you saw when you went into your, your, uh, your, your department store or your, or your drugstore and there would be a spinner rack full of paperbacks. Well, in this case, there's a spinner rack full of books that he had sourced, some of them, you know, 30 and 40 and $50 because they're super out of print uh, of the books from Appendix N. And as I was talking to him while I was buying two of those books, <laughs> saying, what possessed you to do this? He says, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> there is no way we're making any money on it, given the amount of time it took me to source them. Uh, but isn't it neat? And I said, yes, it's amazingly neat. And that, you know, I wish I could say I saw this wonderful new game by a wonderful new designer and she's going to take over the industry and it's going to be magnificent. But I saw no one's new game because I didn't ever get out of the booth. And the time that I did, I went out to Joe Goodman's booth and saw books that are as old as I am in many cases. Well, that moment could be sort of a watershed uh, that represents (laughs) everything because uh, nothing could more epitomize the... Uh, sense of uh, love and nostalgia for the for the hobby and for the the genre in general, and also uh, nothing in its beautiful uh, economic pointlessness could uh, <laughs> uh, sum up uh, the spirit of uh, of gaming that is still alive, even as we're growing and weirdly sort of turning into a real business. And I sure hope that in ten years we're not talking about. Remember when people would do crazy things like uh, Joe Goodman did when he uh, got the Appendix N book spinner rack. Now it's all guys in suits and spreadsheets. And so let's, let's hope we stay, let's hope we keep Gen Con weird. Yes, exactly. And not in the touristy way that you keep Austin weird, but in the way where only weirdos go to Gen Con, we just hope that there's a lot more of them and that they're better socialized. Yes. Where the the weirdness is deep in the spreadsheet. Uh, Exactly. uh, on that note, let's uh, head on out to our uh, final uh, uh, commercial message and then back into uh, some uh, ancillary business. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppet Land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the Maker Killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. So, Ken, people are coming up to us at the show, I'm sure, as as they did with you, and we keep hearing more Food Hut. Yes. Uh, 
Food Hut is, uh, is, is, a, it's a groundswell. It's a phenomenon sweeping the nation. We can't keep up with the demand. Um, if only there was some way to monetize Food Hut, then we'd be, then we'd be talking. We need well, a guy I, with a spreadsheet. I, I think, or you know, most of our Patreon backers are there just for, for Food Hut, apparently. Yeah. Um, right. And, and I heard things like, Thanks to Food Hut, I now roast all of my vegetables. Me too. Which is like, our work here is done. You know, the, the game Except it's not pretext. done. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. We got lots more Food Hut. If you're, if you're right now canceling your Patreon because our work is done, our work is not nearly done. We have so many secrets to impart. Right. Speaking of secrets. Yes. We now come in a little early uh, each year to have a, a Pelgrin meeting uh, before setup day. And that means uh, on the Monday night when we first arrive, before our uh, overseas colleagues have quite arrived, uh, you and I, and in, in this case the uh, uh, effervescent uh, Will Yopst, all look for a new uh, surprising place to eat in Indianapolis. Because, of course, uh, we know that there's nowhere surprising to eat downtown near the convention center where there are so many uh, big chain uh, restaurants or familiar things. But... Being out near the airport allows us to explore, and this time we explored all the way to El Corsal, uh, which I looked up on the old uh, on the Google Maps. Here's your food tip: uh, Google Maps is now a better source of restaurant recommendations than Yelp is, uh, and in this case, it was even better than we thought it was because we found a highly rated uh, Mexican place called El Corsal, and uh, it was in the middle of, shall we say? Nowhere? Nowhere? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing? It, um, it had a beautiful uh, view of the uh, FedEx marshalling yard with all of their transport truck uh, mm -hmm. uh, semis. And yeah, if, if you if you remember from uh, art class in high school and you had a drawing of the vanishing point, we were there. That was us. <laughs> that vanishing point is El Corsel in Indianapolis. And we thought we were going to uh, a highly rated Mexican place, but it turned out it's a highly rated Mexican and Peruvian place, and that's not a play that you make unless you're Peruvian. Right? Yeah, you don't you don't put Peruvian specialties on the menu in hopes to attract the huge number of Indian Neapolitans who are secret um, uh, Peruvian uh, food uh, uh, enthusiasts. You do it because you're a Peruvian, and by gosh, you're going to cook the food of your people. And indeed, they did. And indeed, it was lovely. Um, you recommended we steered the, Will to the to the Lomo Saltado to make yes, sure he had which, a Peruvian uh, dish, which of, he cleaned uh, the, his plate with alacrity. And Robin and I both had the arroz. Uh, what's it called? Chuacas mixto? Chauchos? What's the middle yes, one? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's the rice with like eight million different kinds of meat and seafood uh, blended up into it. So it's basically it's a giant platter of Peruvian fried rice full of different meats and uh, different seas food. And it was uh, magnificent. It was, it was incredible. And it was about what a pound and a half <laughs> of food that arrived for us. We could have split it. We yeah, didn't. It we was did early not. in the proceedings and our judgment was, uh, was perhaps low, but it was, uh, it was really good. I didn't want to stop. I didn't want to give you half. You didn't want to give me half. We needed to lay down a base coat for <laughs> everything that would happen. Uh, and the reason that I'm alive to tell this story today is because of all the nutriment that the rice and seafood provided me that Monday night, I think. Uh, yes. Now, uh, speaking of uh, it's a surprise you're still alive, it's time now to segue into the travel advisory. Because uh, for me, the day after Gen Con was a travel day. The day after the day after Gen Con was uh, its own uh, somewhat uh, grueling exercise of tackling the Toronto International Film Festival program book of which more and on after I go to the festival. But uh, Ken, 
you went on an epic psychedelic journey. And I think at this point, this is where I'm going to find out that you're uh, now uh, decided that the key to everything is like bonding with Mother Earth and you've joined a Jill Stein tribute band. Uh, describe this, uh, this life-changing journey into the heart of the eclipse. Okay. The plan was... <laughs> <laughs> An auspicious beginning. <laughs> yes. Well, there's two ways to begin this. One of them is the plan was. The other one is tell me, O muse, of the man of many devices who wandered full many ways after he had sacked the sacred citadel of Troy. And I decided Let's to start go with the plan was. The plan was. Um, the plan was to drive south of Indianapolis to the great. American eclipse, as it was proclaimed by Fox News on the Denny's uh, TV. <laughs> and by the way, first of all, yeah, suck at other countries. That's our eclipse. You can't have it. Um, made made by America. Made by America, America for Americans. The shining um, eclipse-making city shining, on the hill. Exactly. Your source for the best eclipses. They're going to be huge, classiest eclipses. Anyhow, um, the t- path of totality was about four hours uh, south west of Indianapolis. Uh, it, it passed through the lovely town of Carbondale, Illinois. And I thought Carbondale, Illinois is a lovely town. Um, it will be super easy to drive there, buy some eclipse glasses from a, a quaintly dressed a local and watch the eclipse from their town square, perhaps their gazebo, and then right. go back to Chicago. A simple plan. It, it will have occurred to no one else that the eclipse was happening. Yes. Well, ha <laughs> um, Anyway, so uh, I suggested it to the captain of our ship, uh, Darcy Ross, who was my my ride back. And she, being a scientist, uh, would be nothing loath to go and watch the eclipse. And so that was the decision. And so myself, uh, Darcy, uh, John uh, Harness, uh, another uh, fellow Chicagoan, Will Trufant, uh, and our own cat Tobin piled onto uh, the into the car and headed to what turned out not to be Carbondale, and, but to. And what hour did you pile into the car, Ken? Piled into the car at roughly six a.m. Indian Indianapolis time on the Monday. And and at what time the previous night did you decide that five forty-five was the time to pile into the car? At approximately two a.m. on the Monday, we decided that that would be the plan. So. Uh, two hours of sleep later. <laughs> yes. Because we, it wasn't decided that everyone breaks soberly to uh, catch shut eye. It was decided then keep drinking bourbon was what <laughs> how it happened. And I think keep drinking bourbon may lead a little bit of a clue as to how we decided and how rapidly. Yes. So but anyway. This is a story of altered states. People. This is a story of many altered sleep states. Sleep deprivation and uh, Willits Reserve. Right. And, and then we altered uh, states by going into Illinois. And we wound up at Giant City, Illinois, which is near Carbondale, smaller and more rural. And it was so small and rural, in fact, that it had a campground, a lovely Methodist campground called, I think, the Little Grassy Campground. And the lovely Methodists who ran the place already had uh, the Native American Indian Festival there. So there were some Choctaw uh, people doing a, a, a ceremony. There were some other people sort of off in one part. And then they had just sort of uh, area folk there, the $5 uh, parking and all the eclipse glasses you could eat. And uh, which was a, a steal because there were no eclipse glasses to be had for love or money anywhere else in Carbondale. Um, not that we uh, tried and failed to <laughs> and were laughed at, openly laughed at. People laughed at, at us, Robin. <laughs> 
But, but not the kindly men- Methodists, presumably. No, no, they were lovely. They were delightful. And uh, we were all very, very uh, uh, sleep-deprived, we thought, at the time. And well, obviously, it was the servants of the giants of Giant City. I think so. Giants are notoriously truculent, and their servitors even more so. Well, we, we did pass on the way out of the Eclipse Ground, uh, the place where the giants pen up their Pegasus. And if you're following me on Instagram, you will have seen the Pegasus there. Um but where was I? Oh, yes, Giant City. And then we uh, hung around in the in the area, and, and there was a picnic table we could sit at. Um, and so we sat there, and then the eclipse happened. And I don't know how many of our listeners were there for Eclipse Totality, or, or were other. But none of you were there. I saw you. I would have seen you. But <laughs> there were many other people uh, in our group in our demo scattered along the, the path of totality that did see it. And if you weren't there. You think, oh, I've seen eclipses in the movies. I've seen eclipses on TV. I know what an eclipse is like. No, you don't. Sorry, but you don't. An eclipse, like a They Might Be Giants concert, is best experienced live. Um, the quality of light alters through several different alien planets. As the eclipse passes into totality, you get a 360-degree sunset which is not something you were warned about by eclipse <laughs> literature because the sun is simultaneously setting everywhere. And that is creepy as hell. All the dogs have been barking forever because they are, they know that the, the sky is messed up. Cicadas suddenly come out because it's dark. Um, the darkness hits. It is not a full on pitch darkness because there's a tiny little ring of sunlight around the moon, but it is, still plenty dark and totally weird. The, so, so it's like a day for night shot. Right. Yeah. It's like 60s. a day for night shot in the sixties, including being desaturated and badly colored. It's just an extraordinary experience. Uh, and you know, the two minutes or so of totality is, it, it is like being on another planet. You are not on your planet. Nothing you are evolved to do knows what is going on. And I think that is a big part of why you ha- are so dissociated. The closest I've ever come to an eclipse uh, in terms of the sensation is I was at an installation by the uh, modern artist uh, Elifur Olison, and it's an installation. It's a giant uh, curving wall on which one color is projected and you stand so that only thing in your eye field is that color and then the color changes. And as the color changes, your body, you can feel your body and brain chemistry alter to match the totality of your new uh, input. That's the only thing that I've ever felt that is at all like an eclipse. Um, it's just, and so what was the, the biological effect that like, did you feel this in, in your body, uh, the, along with the sleep deprivation and the, uh, the, the, the vapor of the willets? Did this have a, yeah. a biological the, the, effect on you? Um, the, uh, it's not a hair stands up on the back of your neck, but it is the hackles on the back of your neck do rise. Also, there's just a giddiness. There's just a sense of being unmoored from everything. It's like, you know, it's not quite a euphoria. I love you, man type sense, but it is a sense of you are sharing a moment out of time with people and with yourself that you don't get because again, with the cosmos. Yeah. It's it's the body not recognizing anything that's happening to it. And it's sort of thrown back on its own resources uh, a little bit. The brain doesn't know what's happening. It can't provide data. It can't provide context. Your senses can't be trusted because obviously they're giving you gibberish back. And so there's a, a real sense of sort of being outside yourself uh, that, uh, again, perhaps some of our listeners may also have experienced in other circumstances, but an eclipse is, it, well, it's all natural first man, but second of all, it is its own thing. And it is, I think, irreproducible and almost undescribable unless, unless you were lucky enough to be in the eclipse totality. It, it does sort of, 
remind you that you are an evolved creature that spent three and a half million years sort of building up a sensorium and a, and a bio, uh, and a biologic and a biology that is meant to interact with one specific planet. And when that planet <laughs> cruelly shifts under you, um, you're, you're kind of messed up a little bit by it, but you, but you have a, 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 a sense of being larger and smaller simultaneously, I guess, because, uh, my, uh, John was just standing there and saying, it's just a big rock. It's just a big <laughs> rock. Now, of course, uh, back in the way back in the day when people didn't know that an eclipse was going to happen to them, it must have really felt like, you know, an, an apocalyptic yeah. inbreak that this was it. This was it, people. Right. You you absolutely understand why people would stop battles and make peace treaties immediately if they saw an eclipse or do all manner of other wild, crazy things or let Columbus uh, leave the island safely. You know, whatever it is that they would do uh, due, due to an eclipse, you understand why it would remake your decision-making patterns entirely. Um, and it, uh, it, it is, it's, it's spooky and numinous and weird in the literal sense of the, of, of those words, not in the sense of, you know, oh, it's kind of neat. It, it's just an, an amazing, uh, a feeling of, of being connected and separate at the same time. It's very, very hard to articulate as you can tell, and probably even harder if you have not slept very much because after the eclipse, you have to drive home. And it turns out that Although they were saying 65,000 people in Illinois were going to go watch the eclipse, if they're all spread out along the band of totality, that doesn't seem like very many people. There were some eclipse watchers. We, yeah, there was parking lots that had tents and, and chairs and whatnot set up in them. And you could tell that an eclipse was being watched. But it wasn't like you went to Eclipse Fest uh, 17 and were in a sea of humanity watching the eclipse. Until you drove back to Chicago, which is where all of those 65,000 people were coming from. <laughs> you don't have to go home, but you can't, can't stay, stay here. No. So uh, we set out on the road uh, back to Chicago uh, at around uh, three or four in the afternoon because we'd stopped for lunch. And went, then we went to find a, a local coffee shop in Carbondale, uh, which I found via my space phone so that cat could have good coffee instead of garbage coffee, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, all, all around. And we all needed the coffee because we kept driving and driving and driving and driving and driving, and, except not so much driving as sitting behind other cars. So did you have a giant uh, dopamine crash as the, as the giddiness uh, filtered or were you all still? Oh, the dopamine kept going because camp? we, we manufactured our own giddiness. Uh, we had Darcy. Uh, I think Darcy's father had slipped into the car, uh, mixtapes uh, or mixed CDs because the kids those days had CDs that Darcy had made in her own fragile teen years. And so we insisted on playing those <laughs> and making fun of Darcy, our heroic captain who saved us uh, from the eclipse from the sky pig that was still chasing us. We had, we had reasoned it out eventually that we had entered an eclipse vortex. Uh, the eclipse madness had taken us. We were in the eclipse vortex um, uh, because we think it was either because Cat Tobin had slept through the first playing of Toto by Africa on the way to the eclipse or Africa by Toto on the way to the eclipse, or we were playing Mr. Blue Sky as we drove to the little grassy campground and turned it off as we got out of the car and didn't finish Mr. Blue Sky. So we, uh, as we're driving back, the, 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 the Google Maps is finding us little secret hideaways to get away from some of the traffic. You have saved 28 minutes and we kept seeing cop cars blocking off roads and blocking off passageways and blocking us off and redirecting us away from the Google maps direction. And 
Uh, also, there was the uh, the worms that make cobweb silk had blown up all over some of the trees, and so uh, that that was baffling to some of our our uh, more citified and and uh, non American uh, car passengers. And uh, we had to explain that, and then it was it became apparent that there was also an ongoing Delta Green operation there in Southern Illinois that the eclipse had probably opened up a a portal to Yogg-Sothoth, and someone's uh, spider silk biotechnology had malfunctioned. And uh, the cops were there blocking us off. And then uh, just to make sure that Kat had a full benefit of the Midwest's uh, sky fervor, the sky pig unleashed a torrential Midwestern downpour, a proper thunderstorm. It, the, the lightning, I have to say, was only a B, B, B minus. Uh, right. A lot of it was sheet lightning and heat lightning, which is kind of the, the the weak sauce of lightning. But there were some proper Jovian thunderbolts being hurled. But the monsoon, but not the wintry showers of Ireland. No, the monsoon quality of the rain very much impressed Cat, and it impressed uh, everyone so much that the cops wouldn't let us take the save an hour and a half detour because it had been the underpass under the bridge had been flooded out. So we went back and then sat in traffic behind, uh, ironically. A, um, uh, a, a, I forget if it's a Toyota or a Honda Odyssey for what seemed like forever. <laughs> <laughs> it so, was at that point. So you, that you, you were parked behind an over obvious metaphor. We were, the, the, this trip was so full of over obvious metaphors. It was astonishing. It was like, uh, just, you know, every single moment there would be a on the nose observation made by the radio, made by the song, made by uh, surroundings, made by signs. So your trip was written by Aaron Sorkin. Our trip was, what I'm hearing. was written by Aaron Sorkin, except no one yelled at each other, which was the <laughs> other amazing thing. Uh, at, towards hour 23, uh, Captain Darcy did begin comparing other drivers to physiological unlikelihoods, let's just say, and leave it at that. I don't want to <laughs> sully her reputation by repeating the hateful words that she used about other drivers. But first of all, she was completely accurate. And second of all, she's just accusing them of being various subspecies of snails. She doesn't much care for it, Yeah. Let's leave it at that. Let's say yeah. it was a snail reference and not what it was. Um, then we'll put that when we do the final version. So anyway, we, we ceremonially during the, um, uh, downpours second iteration after cat had said, maybe we could get out of the car and just walk to Chicago faster. And then the downpour returned as if the GM of our lives was saying, <laughs> no, you don't get out of the car. It's a bottle episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We spent all our money on the Gen Con episode. Exactly. It was very expensive. Very expensive. Had to get a lot of extras. And, and so the, uh, the path up through intermittent downpour and eclipse of, and, uh, eclipse watching people was, uh, a, a very much the, the Odysseus returns to Ithaca, except as John pointed out, there was no island where we got to hang out and, uh, have sex with a nymph for three years. It was just straight up, uh, Scylla and Charybdis and Cyclops. It was the, well, presumably you got some good coffee again. That's, that's the equivalent after a long journey. We got, we got coffee here and there. I don't think that it was as good as the common grounds coffee shop in uh, Carbondale, Illinois, which by the way was next to the elite vape headquarters. So I like the <laughs> notion that the vape headquarters, I, I forget if it was cat <laughs> or uh, John that suggested it might've been will that the, uh, um, uh, the vapor headquarters had to be elite to dif differentiate itself from the common grounds people. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, well, I, I think that now that we've uh, had the had the sun uh, blotted out and, and restored to us, uh, that uh, we can uh, now uh, happily exit this podcast. Did did Virgil and Cat uh, are they getting along? They are. They are renewing their their love and friendship. Um, I should say that we arrived in Chicago at six o'clock in the morning of Tuesday and arrived home at seven o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. So our 
entire odyssey was a 26 hour odyssey because of course indiana is an hour ahead so we actually spent 26 hours awake from the point we left indianapolis and uh only i think eclipse madness saved us along with the my bed of rice from monday saved us from a, a fate worse than death that and the and the heroic leadership of Captain Darcy Ross, obviously. But I, I wanted people to understand that the time loop, the time is a flat circle loop that we were in. The eclipse vortex had a pattern to it, and it and it let us out at um uh, symbolically exactly a day later. Uh, well, I can't think of a better note on which to conclude uh, this podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Burst into the exhibit hall alongside such patrons as... Andrew M. Reichert. John Rogers. Patrick Joint. Nancy Feldman. And Ben Blanding. Snag Canon Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash kenrobin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.